There are only two feelings, love and fear. There are only two languages, love and fear. There are only two activities, love and fear. There are only two motives, two procedures, two frameworks, two results, love and fear, love and fear. We're living in times that stretch us. There seems to be a great explosion going on in the world, partly characterized by movements of people across the planet, partly perhaps energized by a hardness of heart so that we can survive these upheavals. And what makes it worse is that there is a, it seems to me, a kind of joyless urgency about our state of mind. But one way of thinking about this upheaval is to see it as a movement uh, 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 questioning what it is to be human and who is in the human adventure and how we all live together. What is Lent trying to teach us? Well, we need a guide, we need a map. I read recently that there's a new publication which I will not be buying. It's called The Ultimate Nerd Guide to New York City. The ultimate nerd guide. Well, even nerds need maps and guides. And of course, New York in the popular imagination is the place where everyone else aspires to be, which makes New York City oddly provincial, doesn't it? We all deep down like to be centrally located, and we like to think that our take on the world is the true one. We've got the real insight. But there are lots of maps available to us for all sorts of ways to be human. And Lent is an opportunity to discover just how wrong we can be about our maps and our sense of direction. So the question perhaps for today is, is the Lord among us or not, is the question in the first lesson. What map rules your life and who or what drew it? Looking for spiritual maps can be hazardous because of our tendency to confuse the life of faith with the pursuit of perfection. So you have particularly among religious people, a fine line between self-righteousness and God's gift to us of setting things right. It's God's gift of righteousness. And that's why so many religious people can be or seem obnoxious. And this is where we make our first mistake, because in our quest to figure out who we are and what we are, we resort to rigid categories and qualifications. We put whole people, large, large people, in these big vats that we, so that we can understand the male and female, race, color, language. And yet our vision of what it is to be human is ever-expanding, and Easter, which we look forward to, is a way we celebrate God's generosity in making each one of us radically unique. So part of the message is don't sell yourself short. There's a part, of, part for you to play that no one else can fill. There's never been anyone quite like you. So consider for a moment the readings, not only the readings this Sunday, but the first Sunday in Lent, the second Sunday in Lent, leading up to that. They're all very unsettling, and they all at least put me off balance. It seems to me many of the stories we read in Scripture are a kind of setup. It sounds shocking, but we're set up to fail so that we can be open to a deeper and more generous mystery. One of my old teachers summed up 
the Gospel of St. Mark in three sentences. God gives everything to you. You are to give everything to God. You can't. And so that can either make you despairing or help you to bump into grace, that you've come to the end of your rope, you've, come, you've used, exhausted all your little bag of tricks, there's nothing you can bargain with, and you're still loved anyway. Think of the uh, central thing of the Scriptures, both the Old and the New Testaments, that God created us neighbors. That sounds great. I find it horrendous. God created us neighbors. There are so many on the people on this planet that I do not want as my neighbor. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a very embarrassing generosity, and it's God's generosity, all-embracing love that gets up my nose. And what about that parable in the New Testament about those people who show up at the 11th hour? Do you remember that one? Anyone remember that? I hope you do. They show up at the 11th hour, and they get the same wages as the people who've been working all day. I've been a priest for over 50 years. I've come to church practically every Sunday. I try and do my best. And this turkey comes in at the last minute and can get in. It's not fair. And what about that one about the prodigal son? It's totally immoral. But we're so used to it, we don't understand the shock of that. It's to shock us into understanding the generosity of God. And St. Paul hits the nail on the head in his brilliant letter to the Romans, his map. He tells us that the love of God is a free gift. By telling us that the love of God is a free gift, we don't quite believe it. We dare not believe it. Surely there's a catch. After all, there's no free lunch. But he insists, and Paul insists, that we are justified by faith, and that justification gives us peace and a relationship to a God who loves us. In effect, St. Paul outlines the pattern of our exodus which is another theme in the scriptures about what it is to be human, being on a great journey together, being formed into a people. Our rescue from the Egypt of our compulsions and anxieties and our perfection and our perfectionism and self-righteousness, being rescued from our fear. So the sheer giftedness of God's love for us touched me very deeply when it first hit me as a teenager. I was nurtured in a wonderful evangelical tradition and I was told that God was madly in love with me. A strange phrase. God is madly in love with you, they said to, to us out there. God is madly in love with you and wants you to come home. I was nurtured in this God's generosity, God's forgiveness, God's inclusiveness. And we're tested. Is God among us or not? We're tested by the way we treat the most vulnerable and needy among us. Why? Because we're all on a journey from Egypt to the promised land. We're in this together. We are people of the Exodus. As an illustration, I think of an old movie, Clint Eastwood's movie, Unforgiven. You may remember it. It was a great movie. His young partner in this movie has shot a man and they watch him die slowly and in pain. And the young man is shaken by this spectacle and wants to justify himself. And he said he had it coming. And the Clint Eastwood character responds, we all had it coming. So it's hard to wake up to the fact that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We prefer to weave a myth around us that assures us that we are morally pure and morally superior. But I've got some good news for you this morning, that there are only sinners in this cathedral. 
Anyone not a sinner? Just checking. You never know. There might be. And that's good news. We have no news for anyone who thinks he's perfect or thinks she's innocent. But if your heart is broken or your heart aches and longs for a fullness of life and you're fraught with mystery in your own heart, this is the place for you. But if you've got it all together and got things all figured out, there's nothing for you here. Zip. Nothing. And that's what we have to come to understand as we unlearn the gospel and relearn it in this wonderful season of Lent, which, as it were, throws a hand grenade into our way of believing. We don't take the fact that we're all under the mercy of God and are all passing through very seriously. We think that we're here permanently and that death, the great transit, is optional. We become settlers and cease to be pilgrims. We build empires and think that they were going, going to last a thousand years, but in reality, we are people of the Exodus. And in St. John's Gospel, the woman of Samaria, not the right place to be, for, be from, is unmasked, and she is included. The fact that she's a woman, the fact that she's a Samaritan, two no-nos for Jesus. Jesus breaks social rules in talking to her, and thus he ushers in the kingdom of righteousness and peace, inclusion and justice, all comes as a gift. I suppose, who are the Samaritans today? Well, I was challenged in the, in the, in the break between the services to sort of come clean. I, I've got something that might offend everybody. Uh, let's try it. Um, the Samaritans are all the people who voted for Trump. No, they're not. The Samaritans are all the people who voted against Trump. So any group you demonize any group you throw out on the edge of things and say are stupid they're the people that jesus is talking to they're the people that jesus loves it's very annoying i know but nevertheless that's what the gospel is trying to teach us the gospel picture of a passionate and defenseless savior on the cross is hardly one that supports our building empires either personal or political and at the center of our faith is this picture of suffering love. We don't believe that we are so loved and forgiven. Rather, we say he or she had it coming. And the gospel tells us we all had it coming, but God in Christ, while we were still helpless and lost, loved us and loved the hell out of us. So if you will, Lent is this annual unlearning of Christianity and involves getting the right map, finding the right diagnosis. It's a time for uncovering what real love is about. It's about uncovering our false loves and finding our true love. It invites us to harness all our energies of loving to mend and heal the world. Yes, and it involves sacrifice. That very powerful old notion that love, as sacrificial love, makes the world go round. Sacrifice makes the world go round. And the theory was, in the early Middle Ages, that if you don't appropriate this in your own heart and do this sacrificial loving, it then works itself out in bloody sacrifice, in, in wars and upheavals and persecution. It was that radical vision of early Christianity that was so powerful. Remember, the coming of Christ was the unprecedented and threaten, threatening bringing together of radically different groups of people, people not quite like us, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, young and old. 
And those early Christians were far from perfect, but they imperfectly cracked through the ineradicable, many of them cruel, inequalities of the ancient world, eating at the same table, shocking. Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, young and old, proclaimed that the human race was one. In the end, there is only one ethnic group, and that's all of us together. And we're called to be one another. Everyone is welcome at the feast. To be fully human is to be in communion with one another. The maxim is being is communion. And don't misunderstand me. I don't like this a lot of the time. And I find it very, very difficult. But our map inconveniently shows us that God created us neighbors, which of course is crazy because there's not enough room for all of us on the bus. And there's not enough wealth and food to share. Well, maybe there is. Maybe we've progressed an inch or two. I think one of the things that I've moved from is when you, when you understand whole categories of people as solid, like um, we say all Muslims, all Christians, all Jews, all Texans. I just choose that as a random state. Um, you best block them all together. And what happens is our prejudices really get more sophisticated. I, my prejudice, I tell you a couple of mine, the people I can't stand are men who wear baseball caps in restaurants. Now, I'm being purposely trivial, but it's much better for me to be go, you know, get on a tirade about them. And the, wow, I won't tell you what I think about the ones who wear them backwards. They are brain-dead, stupid people. Deplorables, one might say. And then, finally, there are those people who bring up too much stuff on aeroplanes and fill up the overhead bins. They're the people we should be prejudiced against. And I'm being, as I say, purposely trivial about this to point out that if we have these wholesale prejudices and put whole classes of people, all Muslims do this, all Christians do that, uh, all Texans, maybe, uh, maybe we've progressed an inch or two, maybe we've understood... Um, well, the challenge to be fully human comes to me really from uh, a, a place that is very simple-minded. And I want to give you just a very simple, simple, simple example from the poet W.H. Auden. And he's writing in 1933, but it's about something that we can all appreciate, and it isn't some kind of great cosmic uh, challenge, but something that I think you can all, we can all respond to. He said... Um, it's about a moment when the heart gets a glimpse of what it is to be at peace and at rest and care about other people. He says, one fine summer in June 1933, I was sitting on a lawn after dinner with three colleagues. We liked each other well enough, but we certainly weren't intimate friends. We were talking casually about everyday matters when quite suddenly and unexpectedly something happened. I felt myself invaded by a power which, though I consented to it, was irresistible and certainly not mine. For the first time in my life, for the first time in my life, I knew exactly, because thanks to the power I was doing it, I knew exactly what it meant to love one's neighbor as oneself. My personal feelings towards them were unchanged. They were still colleagues, not intimate friends, but I felt their existence as themselves to be of infinite value, and I rejoiced in it. And I recalled with shame 
the many occasions on which I had been spiteful, snobbish, selfish. But the immediate joy was greater than the shame, for I knew that so long as I was possessed by this spirit, it would be literally impossible for me deliberately to injure another human being. I also knew that the power would, of course, be withdrawn sooner or later, and that when it did, my greed and self-regard would return. The experience lasted at its full intensity for about two hours. The memory of the experience has not prevented me from making use of others, grossly and often, but it has made it much more difficult for me to deceive myself about what I'm up to when I do it. I thought I had done with Christianity for good. Many of us need to come back to a simple faith that we thought we'd long left behind, an invitation to come home. And it's not a matter of being miserable. It's a matter of waking up to our true love. It's a matter of our knowing that we are on the move, nomads of the spirit, people of the exodus, so that we actually respect and see the power and dignity of other human beings. So here today, at this Eucharist, you can hold a morsel of bread in your hand, you can feel a sip of wine on your tongue at this table, your true love. You can hear the words, come home, all is forgiven. God is madly in love with you and wants you to come home. And then again, the words of Auden in one of his great poems, we must love one another or die. That's the question. So if you've got it all together, there's nothing here. Zip. But if you're puzzled by yourself, open to the strange mystery that you are, then this is the place for you. And dear friends, it's time to come home. It's all deceptively simple. We must love one another or die. Because there are only two feelings, love and fear. There are only two languages, love and fear. There are only two activities, love and fear. There are only two motives, Two procedures, two frameworks, two results, love and fear, love and fear. Which is it to be?